I'm so glad to see that you're feeling better. You had a very close call. But you're gonna be all right. Now, just lie still. I'm gonna give you something. It's gonna make you feel even better. Welcome to the, the Bearded Dicks Musical Fun Time. I'm the Beard. I'm the Dick. And we're here to give your ear holes some suggestions for things you should do with your time. Mm. Mm. Love that. <laughs> that is what we do. We penetrate your ear holes hard, fast, rubbery, like a snake made out of s- silicon and saliva. Yeah, a silicaiva snake. Yeah. Oh, it's, too bad we're not like some kind of biologists, so we could name a snake that. Yeah, make our own snake. A snake. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're only found in the San Fernando Valley where they shoot the porno. Yep, <laughs> that's true. So as usual, we will start today's episode with the opening of the disco box. <laughs> Okay, so it's been a while, like that song. It's been a while. Don't. don't. No. No. Okay, close that. <laughs> close that compartment in the disco box. That's that's the thing that gets left in Pandora's box. Yeah. But it's not hope. Yeah, it's not. It's who does that song? Uh, Stained. Probably. So yeah, um, it's been a while. There's been a lot of new music in my life, and then. Not actually that much, and mostly just re-listening to the same kinds of stuff for the past two and a half months. So sometime in when we left off, it was a lot of Linecraft that continued on, and it led me into other Japanese industrial music, namely Dissecting Table, who's one of the longest-running Japanese projects there is. Although that's not even really true. There's a ton of really long-running Japanese projects. So. But he's the longest-running industrial one, except for maybe Grimm, who took a huge hiatus, whereas Dissecting Table now releases, like, 30 things a year. It's insane. That's awesome. No, it's not. It's unfortunately not. Um, (laughs) But anyway, he was one of the few artists that I never really got into, and I have a split between him and this Portuguese industrial project that's now sadly defunct called Sector 304, and his material was baffling to say the least. I listened to it once when I got it and was just kind of shelved it. And like, I don't know what to do with this. And a lot of people were like, Oh, it's just a rehash of his old stuff, but I never heard his old stuff. So I didn't really know what to think. And I picked up his seminal. Well, okay. I say that all the time. I picked up his, one of his most famous works called Zigoku or Jigoku, uh, which means hell in Japanese. And I'm not going to review that in full, but I will recommend it. It's <laughs> a very interesting 
mixture of ambient dark ambient sounds with like what sounds like basically PlayStation era sound effects and horror music yeah. music. Yeah, and I was gonna say it sounds like a mix of horror movie music and like video game stuff. Like very it's very soundtracky. Yeah, it's and it's weird. And that album has more flow than almost any of his other work. So it is noteworthy in that sense. But I got really into the album and then reevaluated some of these other material I have in my collection. Mostly I've got compilation tracks he's done um, after his golden period, which is he got into a lot of digital signal processing oriented noise, harsh noise stuff. And so it's weird and goopy and uh, digital all at the same time. And some of it is really good. And since I don't have a deep attachment to his early period, I was able to enjoy it unfettered by expectations and uh, it all led me into collecting more of his work. And there was a guy selling basically his collection of all of the Golden Period albums, which was just like year after year from 92 until basically 1999. Dissecting Table released like nothing but just solid ass work, one album after the other. And they were all, he uses a lot of the same kinds of sounds, but as the years went on, he got more and more sort of innovative with it and basically the core of dissecting table is this whirlwind percussion sound that you can't really be prepared for i mean you've heard some of it now yeah. it's fucking nutty sounding it's just like this like 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 crazy hyper programmed whirling metal percussion but then he also does these sort of like heavy metal riffing that some of it's on guitar some of it's like synth sounding like guitar and some of it's like really corny the way it's written, but when it bleeds in with the metal whirling and these like very gruff, like uh, indistinguishable or like unintelligible vocals, it 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 all starts to like work together. And then you're like, this is pretty fucking great. He's got a very unique sound palette. The only downside to that is that he relies on the same kinds of things and structures over and over and over again. So it does get a little repetitive. And I picked up eight CDs uh, all in one go from him. So I've been really inundating myself with his material. And out of those eight CDs, I want to highlight two of them for my Disco Box recommendations uh, that to me are the strongest of what I've heard. And I really like Zigoku, but I probably like these albums better. The first one is Dead Zone, which came out in 1995 on his own UPD uh, organization label, which is Ultimate Psychological Description Organization is what that stands for. And Dead Zone is interesting in the sense of it's got guests on two of the tracks and is a little different than the albums that come before it and come after it. The first song is all vocals and it starts off as being like very minimalist and then builds and builds and turns into this like just like squalling harsh noise brutality with just his voice and is fucking sick as somebody who worships like really good vocals. It's a particularly interesting piece and his vocals sound different than they normally do. So it's an awesome start. And then it goes into the, the track slaughter machine, which is has that cyclonic metal whirlwind percussion, but has a lot of like down top, like parts where that's not in it. And it actually flows in and out of the sections really well. And there's like, proper lead-ups and build-ins to the percussion and then like it fades out and it's got these like almost ebm synths that are very 
late 80s, early 90s, cheap, shitty-sounding things with, like, right. funky rhythms that if you've ever listened to The Clinic or Frontline Assembly's early stuff or, like, the modern uh, high-functioning flesh, they all have this very, like, step-sequenced synth sound that's very cool. Um, he'll It'll go into, like, sections like that and then back into these harder-edge sections. And then the next track, Brainwash, which is, like, 16, almost 17 minutes long, um, does a similar kind of thing but has... Uh, harder parts and even like more spooky ambience and just it gets like weird it's it's really very cool and then it ends with um in my mind which is probably my least favorite on the album just because i don't like sort of the nightmare carnival sound that comes in in parts of it um but it's only four tracks on the album but like they're none of them are shorter than 10 minutes it's 10 minutes 14 minutes, 16 minutes, 16 minutes. Like, this is uh, the long haul. But really, 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 really good. And if you're into industrial music and you've never heard Dissecting Table or you've never heard these classic albums, like I had gone, you know, 10 years into this music or more and never heard it, um, most of them are available super cheap and they're really good. I can recommend almost anything from uh, 92 to 98. It's all worth checking out. Um... So that's kind of of his pre-release slash relapse era, which he only did two albums on relapses, sub-label release. But before he hits that place, like, this is the best album. And then my second recommendation is the second album he did for Release Entertainment slash Relapse Records, which is an American label that also brought Mersbau, Masona, and I'm missing another one of the famous Japanese noise legends, but they brought a couple Japanese noise artists like to American audiences by doing huge pressings of now ultra seminal works. And some of them are worshipped just because they were so available. So it was like one of the first noise albums I ever bought was Mers Bao's Venereology, which is one of his most insanely brutal, like ultra just fucking like outrageously loud like the mastering on the cd is like a punch in the face when you turn it on like even if it's like on mute basically and uh maybe it's not his best work ever but it was my introduction so it's like i still go back to that as like i want to get brutalized by murder spell like i just put that on and it feels like full gape immediately and um i'm pretty sure frequency lsd by Misana's on release but maybe i'm wrong i think shock rock might be on it too um, those are great. Anywho, so his Dissecting Table second album on re uh, release was called Life, and it is much more heavy metal influenced, which sort of, like, is cool, because it works with the being a sub-label of a major heavy metal label, and has, like, very distinct riff structures in the songs, Sometimes it reminds me of Godflesh, but it's never nearly as plodding or slow, but it definitely has like these simple riff structures that are like super effective and just like hit your reptilian brain and I'm just like wanna like do bad things and smash things and and stuff. And uh it's not like I, I definitely Dead Zone is to me, I guess like just like the the one to go to, but life is got a lot of like weird samples mixed in unlike the other stuff before there's like women screaming which is pretty normal but then there's like the sound of sheep and pigs and other animals that like all get mixed in and life is such a non-negative title but and it sort of has this like you know uh, 
celebration of like the sounds of the world, but then they're all like swirled into this fucking <laughs> meat grinder of a thing, and you know, it's it's definitely has like a, a people have described him as industrial metal at times, and this is one of those albums for sure, and. I don't know that I could pick a single track. Needs of the Body is good, which is the opener. I mean, this is another four-song one. So I Would Like to Be is probably my favorite. It's also the shortest on the album and has some like really nasty vocals and screams and like just fucked-up-sounding parts. But the whole thing is good. And, uh, yeah, if you like one of his albums, then you're probably going to like any of the others. The only ones that are real outliers are Zigoku, which has the least amount of, like, the insane metal stuff, and, um, music for dead body, music for performance, uh, dead body something, dead body and me, which is on, actually, Dirk Ivan's label, who's from the clinic, and is much closer to, like, consistent dark ambient abstract weirdness that is, like, what the clinic sounds like at their weirdest and most abstract um and is good but not as good and it's kind of drags for me in parts but his early between life and death is another like sort of an outlier where the vocals are super fucking loud in the mix they're like like jarringly loud when you first have it cranked up uh but also has a very serious eb influence into some of the tracks and the the sequencing so yeah, but you can do well to check out anything by him. Um, it's definitely been a huge boon to find out, like, what I've been missing for so long and has sent me into a sort of little mini spiral that's uh, I haven't had in quite some time. And he has... So basically after, like, 2000 and... I think it was 8, but even really before that, like, after, like, 2004, he started, like, just releasing anywhere from 5 to 25 things a year but there'll be like box set CDRs limited to five and like all this shit. And then he'll sometimes collect like all the best material from 25 CDs onto one CD at the end of the year. And then those are worth getting. But basically like, it seems as if he's just releasing everything that he records. And, um, I know a lot of people that were longtime fans just stopped listening and stopped caring. Cause it's like, you can only, follow it for so much and there's yeah. some people on the forums that have talked about like they followed him into that for quite a while and they have some of these like ultra limited box sets and they're like yeah it's cool but it's also like what the fuck am i doing with my money <laughs> and uh so i haven't really dipped my toe into that too much i have non-euclidean geometry which is one of his more well-known later period albums of like digital harsh noise and i've heard his material he did two different collaborative slash split um, releases with Sector 304, one of both of which use like they use one another source material to make tracks, um, but they're the material he does on those definitely com pales in comparison to his early period. Uh, also, to note, some of the worst, consistently awful artistic design for his sleeves, like they're just terrible. The first three albums are actually pretty cool, uh, or four really. It's um, uh, ultimate psychological description and between life and death zigoku and ultimate psychological description 2 all have like pretty decent early 90s uh graphic design and i i actually quite like the dead zone it's a live photo that's like really grainy but then after that like everything from the font to the just the colors to the way everything's like all, like not perfectly centered and tons of spelling errors it's just 
It's fucking awful. It's really bad. And the albums he did for release and uh, crowd control and all the rest are these like ultra processed through early Photoshop, like shitty digital manipulation shit. That's just like the fucking worst. But for the kind of music that it is, like it actually matches it pretty well because it's like pretty ugly, awful, and at times very cheap sounding music. But it, it's the way it's delivered is so satisfying that it all makes up for it. So awesome. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Ben and I haven't been able to um, listen to a lot of this music together because normally we get sort of uh, cross-enjoyment from things by listening to records while we play video games, and all this shit's on CD, and also Ben got a new receiver that is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. And... Uh, uh. Yeah, it's like it's it way too great. Fa- it's way too fancy for its own good, and they don't have like a traditional phono input, and it's yeah, we're figuring that out. So we'll get there one day. Yeah, so I'm sure Ben will have more to say on some of my recommendations to come in the future, but right now a lot of this has just been things I've been listening to on my own. Yeah, so. uh, Dick Fetty got me an Oak album on vinyl. You can't uh, fucking listen to it. But yeah, for for Christmas. And I cannot fucking listen to it. I'm dying inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, too, because the thing I'm going to recommend would be one of the perfect things to play to it. Is it Bloodborne? No. Oh. No, it's not Bloodborne. It's Hollow Knight. Oh. Bet you saw that coming. Yeah, I didn't think of that. So I know in the past I do, like... Oh, I got man. one more. I got one more. Oh, oh, I'm we sorry. We haven't even closed the box yet. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's all right. So, my last recommendation before we close the box um, stems from the same circle of shit. So, two things that sort of brought me here. One is Sector 304. So, Sector 304 was this duo from... They were really, I think, a triplet by the end of it. A trio, as you will. And... Um, triplet? Yeah. Well, whatever. And, uh, anyways, they were this like band that came out of Portugal at a time when... And really, it's continued on power electronics and industrial and everything that was happening in noise was all like super rough and super brutal and super low fi very filth and violence like was like hitting its its stride. And they came out actually a little bit before that. But their debut album, their like proper album was on Malignant. uh, And then they did their follow up album also on Malignant. I think it was about two years later. Maybe it was even longer but they were these very well produced, like clearly like studio level production stuff where they did like um, these very well composed songs and albums generally, like the whole albums are a huge fluid thing that work as independent tracks, but like clearly are all designed to be together. Uh, And they do the sort of what I think of quintessential industrial music as banging on oil drums banging on sheets of metal and using power tools to do it and stuff like that. So you get a lot of these like awesome organic sounds with massive droning type synth things. They do not uh, get afraid of dark ambient ambient soundscapes mixed in with their like more brutal rock and tracks and they fucking rule. I have almost everything they've ever done and they broke up and I completely missed it and was super miffed when I found out because they were doing something that was very much in line with uh, SPK and Test Department and other quintessential 80s bands, industrial bands, but they also did it with a modern palette, largely, 
in a way that for me, like I can really dig on that old school, very rough stuff, but like they had a level of polish that was, I really appreciated. And their second album, Subliminal Actions, I think it's called, um, is like a fucking masterpiece. Like it's, it's definitely one of the best industrial noise, palatronics, whatever albums of the past decade. Like it's really, really phenomenal. And I have this sick ass box that they did. That was essentially their last release. That's a seven inch. It's, it's actually over there. Uh, it's a seven inch, three CDs, one of which is a live, like a big live thing. The other one's this long dark ambient track. And the other one's like sort of a mixture of, sound collage industrial decay drone whatever an awesome fucking zine and the seven inches killer too so i was obsessing over this shit in november and december and that got me into dissecting table because of their splits with them uh or with him rather and i was begging for something more and then i remembered that the one guy andre cohilo or colijo my apologies if i got that wrong did a project with another with a woman post sector 304 called beyond enclosure and they've only done one album so far it also came out on malignant uh and it's called dungeon of total void and it's sort of a classic industrial themed release in the sense of it's all about snm rubber latex uh you know enclosure restriction all these types of things that are sort of Really good themes for Love that. yeah brutal music, and on top of it, you've got a chick involved, so it adds that extra layer of sauciness to it. And there are some easy comparisons to draw to Puce Mary, um, is the one I think of first of all, and then there's the Maria Magdala or Magdala maybe it just is, who's a Czech artist uh, who has a similar kind of aesthetic. A lot of women in noise wind up going into the sort of sexy fetish route as far as appearance or themes. Uh, but this is way less sexy than a lot of those projects. I mean, it's all very explicitly sexually oriented in the lyrics and what, and that type of thing and the imagery on the digipack, but the, the delivery of it, we were just listening a little bit before we started the episode is this extremely cold, um, the vocals, you can barely tell they're a woman's voice. They're del delivered in this like monotone fashion that are uh, very affected. And there's this really nice balance between heavy electronic sense of the kind of like, you know, pumping. Like I just think of this sort of vacuum sealing uh, sound of like, you know, somebody in a big tied up square of latex getting all the air sucked out as it like, you know, goes around them. And then on top of that, they have on a couple of the tracks, some nice like whistling feedback and, and the vocals are never brutally delivered. They're always just this like, you know, total, le not even leather daddy, but like fetish commander type of dispassionate, like, you know, we're, we're doing this like nasty sex shit and I'm not even emotionally excited about it. Like I'm just your tormentor and it doesn't go into like clinic of, uh, torture level of like total misery. It's, it's, it is sexier than that. Like, it's definitely sexier than that. But it's really tasty. It's just very to the point, on the nose, but at the same time super effective. And I think that the fact that Andre's involved in it sort of, you know, and he's got this long history in industrial music, you can you can hear the, the quality of the composition and, like, you know, simplicity can be such a tool because if you're, like, 
using simplicity to highlight well-constructed sounds, then you don't need a bunch of shit. Like, right. it doesn't have to be an overload to be effective. And and I think with the theme, it's like the monotony of the sounds and, and the sort of, like, you know, noise generator here, feedback there, bass synth here, and just, like, you know, and then monotone vocal delivery. It works over and over and over again for me. And uh, I picked that CD up from Malignant a couple weeks ago or a month ago or whatever it's been, and that's been an easy... Easy to listen to highlight in, in my, my current listing right now. And it's one of those kinds of things where a lot of power electronics is like some of it, maybe it, I'm just getting older or worn out or I don't drink as much at all. And, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I don't have the like the rage and the hate and whatever. And I just don't have the tolerance for like the level of unpleasantness that some of that shit is. And this is definitely like a, for me, an easy listening industrial album, like, the, the, none of the sounds or themes or anything are so horrible that I can't listen to it on my way to work or, you know, whatever. So really digging that. Um, I'll probably have more stuff in line with these kinds of recommendations, I'm going to guess, for our next episode. but More than likely, because yeah. you get into your zones. Yeah, I did, I did think about uh, doing a recommendation for the Clock Tower 4CD box set I got, um, video game soundtrack thing. But I can't really honestly recommend it just because it's like 200 plus tracks and half of those are 10 second sound clips from like the games and shit like that. Like the parrot saying I'll kill you is like one of the songs. That's awesome. It is and it isn't. Like they don't necessarily make for the most compelling listens. And essentially each CD has like four real songs and then the rest of it's just like repeated cues yeah, well, and I have a feeling very soon we're going to have a video game soundtrack coming up in your fun box. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's we'll, true. We'll get to that next yeah, time. Yeah, we'll get to that next time. So that is, those are my disco box recommendations. You ready to close this box? Let's do this thing. Here. So, um... As previously mentioned... As previously mentioned, because I think this is the second time I interrupted you before we closed the box, because mm. I'm a jerk face. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I know in the past I used to do like a lot more varied things on my Best Buys, but... Uh, the thing is, right now, is like I've just been obsessing over video games, and it takes a lot longer to uh, read a book and give you an honest, uh, give you an honest appraisal appraisal of that. And I just haven't been reading too many comics recently. Anyway, we're going back into video games. Love that. Um, a game I've been obsessing over, going to bed at night, being like, "How am I gonna beat this boss? I know I can do. It. How am I gonna do it?" Is Hollow Knight. Um, which, for lack of a better term, is a Metroidvania, but we'll get more into that. The game was published in 2017 on Windows, Mac, and Linux, and it was partially funded through Kickstarter uh, and raised 57000 by the end of 2014. Uh, it was developed and published by Team Cherry. I don't know what else they've done, honestly. But the two designers that are on it were Ari Gibson uh, and William Pellin, and the guy who programmed it was David Kazi. Ari Gibson is like the main artist, and the dude is good. Yeah. The the art in this game is phenomenal, and the composer was Christopher Larkin, who did a phenomenal job on the sound design for this game and the way they use it. But I'll I'll, I'll get into that. And then last year, uh, it came out for. 
Actually, first the Switch, and then PS4 and Xbox One. Uh, so, go pick up this fucking game, people. Anyway, like I said, it's a Metroidvania. You mean the PS4? Isn't that what I said? You said the PS1. PS4. That would be sick. That Retro means, release. I don't even know if it could handle it. Maybe it could. I don't no. know anything about computers. But, um, yeah, I got this game on my Switch. Uh, I'm a sucker for buying any indie game on my Switch because then I can put it in handheld and I can take it everywhere I go. It feels sort of wrong getting it for like a PS4 or anything. Not because the game doesn't warrant it, but like, especially with Metroidvanias, I want to, like if I could, I would have bought that Symphony of Night collection, the mm. Castlevania collection, for my Switch. Yeah. Just so I could fucking, you know, while I'm lying in bed, just be playing it on my fucking fat, mostly hairless stomach. Mm. Like a little newt. But like I said, it's a Metroidvania in the sense that part of it is exploring, part of it is defeating enemies... And in that, you gain abilities that allow you to reach other areas in previous locations. Yeah. And I, I remember when it came out, it was often described as a Dark Souls take on Metroidvania because of its sort of trial and error aspect to the combat and the sort of brutalness of it and some of the mechanics. I think it's more closely related to Bloodborne. I'll tell you why. And I'll get into like, the art direction and everything, but the gameplay itself... It's more, one, it's more attack oriented. Mm. Um, and there is dodging, but it, it's more aggressive. Yeah. Like you're fighting, so it feels more like Bloodborne to me. And the world itself feels more Bloodborne to me than. Well, Bloodborne had a lot more people to interact with than the Dark Souls game because it was fucking dead for the most part. Exactly. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of characters that you meet throughout the game. Uh, the boss fights are. Awesome. You actually beat one of them yeah. for me, which was an awesome fight. Awesome fight. Anyway, so gameplay-wise, you can slash up, you can slash down, you can slash right and left, and then as you go through, you unlock other abilities. Um, I'm not going to go into them because I just want you to play the game and be surprised and explore, but one of them is, like, you can dash. Yeah. So you do have that, like, kind of dodge factor like you do in, like, the Souls and Bloodborne games. But it's also told the same way that they do in those games. Like, there's no specific storyline. Like, so you're this little bug guy. Everyone's a bug in it. It's all bugs. Mm. You're like this little beetle. I guess like a stag beetle or something. And you drop down into this area and you walk into this place called Dirtmouth, which is like this small town that is over this once great city called Hollow Nest. And for the most part, everyone down there is dead. They're a zombie or they're just like some kind of creature or whatever. And you like interact with one guy and then you go down there and you get maps and stuff. And it's not like immediate. Like you have to work for the ability to even see where you are on the map. I'm, I'm 16 hours into the game and I barely scratched the surface. Uh, I haven't defeated any of, like, the, the quote-unquote major bosses. And th there is a storyline there, but, like, in the so Souls games, you have to kind of, like, glean it. So, like, you'll find, like, little things that allude to what might have happened to Hollow Nest and why it's deserted for the most part and how this ultimate civilization fell. You run into other characters down there, 
and they always seem like they're in like this weird dream state when you first run into them. Mm-hmm. Which I have my theories about, but I'm not really going to go into because I want you to gain your own theories from playing the game. Yeah. But it's I don't want it's not cutesy. It's almost like it's cartoony meets. It, I feel like if um you had a hot goth, goth girlfriend that was drawn bug animes, this would be it. This would be it. Yeah, that's um, a that's a fair assessment. Yeah, it's it's very dark and dreary, but they're also kind of cute. Um, but the gameplay is phenomenal. Like the jumping is very floaty, the movement feels really good, the action on fighting feels good. The sound when you're fighting sounds yeah. good. The good this wax. The sound design in the game is perfect. Yeah. Because so in each area you have to get a map to be able to look at the area on a map. I realize that coming out of my mouth sounds stupid. But there's this character that you meet that makes that maps out all of Hollow Ness and whenever you get into a new area you have to find him. So they do that one of two ways. You find these like little pieces of paper and then once you get close to him you hear humming. Mm-hmm. So every time you hear a sound that sounds like someone else you start to realize, like, oh, there's another character here I can interact with or, or something like that. And later, further down in Hollow Nest, there's an enemy that dive bombs you, but they're always hiding, and they make a very specific sound. So it's both helpful and, like, nerve-wracking. Because you hear the squeaking, you're like, oh, fuck, one of those things there. And it doesn't automatic two hits of damage. So if you're already low on health, it could kill you outright, even if you have more than one health. Um, You have, like, notches for health, and then you have your, I guess, mana meter, for lack of a better term, which you can use to cast spells, or you can use to heal yourself. But while you're healing yourself, you're totally vulnerable, and it takes a little while. So it it really builds that tension like you can get away with healing yourself during a boss fight but you have to be careful and you got to time it right yeah. you're going to get punished mm-hmm. like the first and most of the time i want to say just like a, a dark souls or a bloodborne game first time you go into a boss battle you are not going to win yeah and very much like that you have to go from wherever your save point is so just like all metroidvania games you have these points on the map where you can stop you save and if you die, that's where you go back to. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about it is when you die, it definitely has that connection to those Souls games where you have, you as you go through, enemies drop these, I can't remember what they're called, but they're essentially these little silver pieces, and you use them as your currency, using them to upgrade your character, buy things. Uh, there is a slot system that allows you to, like, have buffs on you, mm-hmm. and you only have a certain amount of slots, so you like mix and match them. Some will give you like an extra two hearts, some will make you a little bit stronger, some will make you shoot these things out of you when you get hit. Uh, so, once you die, you leave this little shade behind and you have to go back to it. And one of the main reasons that I, I look at it more like Bloodborne instead of Souls is you actually have to kill the thing. You don't just go back to the spot and get it. Yeah. So like in Bloodborne, an enemy can pick up your your blood echoes, and you have to kill it to get them back. Yeah. Which can be a real fucking pain sometimes if it's in a really inconvenient spot. A lot of the times, the game developers seem to be pretty uh, forgiving. So, like, if you're in a... Like, if you die on a boss, it'll be in the room just before the boss. Yeah. So you're not fighting your shade 
and the boss. Yeah, which is the classic Dark Souls dilemma of they get dropped in a boss room and then you have to run in and try to get your souls before the boss kills you. And then try to get your souls and not like have fucked up the whole boss fight trying to do that. I can remember doing the Shadow of Yarnum and just having to do that over and over and over. And yes. then finally when you lose your souls, you're just relieved because then you don't have to worry about that shit anymore. But you never have enough to spin them all. You're always in that in-betwixt period where you're you're desperately trying to kill this boss to get his souls so that you can then spend the souls you've already got. Yeah, I'm fully aware of that whole thing. So. Yes, yes. It's very painful. Yeah. But each area of the game, each sector is very well fleshed out. The design for each area, like there's one called Green Path that's all floral and, and leafy and... All of the enemies for that area match that area, so you're not just having the same enemy over and over again in every fucking area. Yeah. They match that, and then even more so, when you're exploring, if it's a like a gateway between one area and another, you'll see like little nods to that. So if you're going from a one area that's you know leafy and green to an area that is not or let me reverse that, an area that's not leafy and green to an area that's leafy and green, you'll start to see like more plants growing in that general area, like the room surrounding that before you go into the leafy part, which is very well designed. Yeah. Very well designed. The music in it is great, and even though you run into these characters, it feels very alone and dead, and uh, it's really good to play in the dark. I really wanted to play it with headphones on, but I can't find my headphones. So, the, I paid $9 for it. They had it on sale yeah. over, over like, this winter time. I guess it's still winter, but I guess more so over the ho holidays. I don't know if it's still that, but like I said, you can get it for everything. I haven't delved into the DLC yet. Um, I don't know much about the DLC. I know there's one that's, like, God Killer or something like that, mm -hmm. whereas essentially it's a boss rush. So you get to do all the bosses, and then if you do a bunch of stuff in that you get to defeat a boss that was never in the game that's supposedly really hard. I am currently stuck on one of the, from what I've read, the hardest bosses in the game. Uh, and But the, the, the game is fucking solid. I'm 16 hours in, and I am not remotely bored yeah. at all. Yeah, I, uh, I've only played it the one evening with you for a little bit. It definitely was interesting, and one of those things that is... I think a lot of those, especially, like, Souls games, too. We've done a lot of social blood... Well, all of Bloodborne has been social. Um, but it's always harder to me because you sort of, like, you know, you got to get in this zone, and that zone is generally, like, there's nothing but you in the game, and then you hit your stride, and then you can really make progress, and it's one of those things where so much of the part of the reward of any of those types of games is, like, the exploration mattering and happening and being rewarding uh, from both like progressing your character but also just like understanding the world more and getting to see a well-designed world like Dark Souls 3 for the flaws and issues people have with it along with Dark Souls 1 both had an ex I mean really all three of the games but those two to me especially like, they just, as you're exploring, like, the next thing is, like, you never know what's going to come next. And when it does come, you're like, oh, fuck, this is so fucking cool. I remember it's after you beat King Wolnir in Dark Souls 3, you get to uh, Ethereal, you know, Ith Ithreal, 
Boreal Valley or whatever the fuck it's called. The icy ass place with all these fucking fire witches and like spirits and, and it's just it's so so different than anything you've done yet and you have no idea what to expect and it's fucking terrifying and brutal and awesome and yeah, Hollow Knight is like that. Yeah, I was and there's there is actual platforming in it, like skill based platforming. It's not on the level of like let's say me uh, super meat boy but it is very like skill based of you having to use your abilities to navigate like corridors that are covered in spikes and doing certain jumps at certain intervals um one of the bosses i defeated today uh to get there you have to go through this big room of spikes and then there's this corridor that you have to go up and then down and there's like a very small margin for where you have to like wall jump and above and below the one spot, there's spikes. So, like, it's a very small area to get through. So you have to go through all of that. And then and get then, to the boss. And then you go, well, then you go down, and there's, you can, like, hold down to look down, and the screen will go down a bit. But, like, you know, one misstep, and you're in more spikes. So you have to do all of that to get to the boss. And I beat it today, and I was like, fuck yeah! Just, like, that Dark soul, like, that hard boss feeling that... Yeah. So many people pretty much play Dark Souls 4 is that, like, that feeling of that challenge of getting through it. Um, but yeah, the game is pretty cheap. Um, I definitely think it's worth picking up. Uh, I'm going to look honestly into getting the soundtrack if I can. Uh, I don't know if any company did a physical release. I don't think they did, considering it just came out for major consoles but I'm sure year. that it will because video game soundtracks like film soundtracks are hot ticket items right now and I think especially the whole booming video game it's so interesting to me because I remember being at PAX the last time I went and they had just released Hotline Miami 2 and they were selling it was maybe a double or triple vinyl release but it was like they're selling it for starting at 65 or 75 dollars and it was in a tri-gatefold, but, like, okay. Like, you know, I mean, I can buy a ton of records that are as much music that are going to be better than this soundtrack, but, like, gamers will pay that much. And I think it's in part, like, the whole nerd culture thing. Like, being a record-collecting nerd is its own deal, but you become aware of the market and what those items are worth, and people are generally going to pay a lot less for a lot of stuff. Whereas, like, nerds are just... They are willing to pay more money for a bunch of bullshit and so you see these video game soundtracks that are 30 and 45 dollars for an album or a double album and it's like just to have this music in a physical form and it's and most of the music almost all of it is always stuff that was recorded digitally produced digitally like for digital release so the idea of like spending so much money to then get it on a physical analog format it's just it's silly in many ways and granted I've just spent some money on this so I kind of know from experience how silly it is but yeah it still will probably be worth it but I mean it's it's just interesting I would always be afraid of the next video game soundtrack that's good because I feel like we'll give it a physical release and then they'll have some deluxe outrageously priced version that'll come with a lithograph yeah. Well, I was actually um, discuss. I was actually what I meant was something that's even more expensive, and more ridiculous. Albeit, if I had the money, I'd collect a bunch of video game bullshit I don't need. Um, there are, at least there's at least one company I know about called. I think they're called Limited Run, mm -hmm. and they do 
physical copies of indie games. Mm -hmm. So, like, they'll do, like, a Switch cartridge or a PS4 disc, an Xbox disc, with, like, box art, whole nine, for the game. And I, I'm not a huge... Like, I don't like collecting things digitally if I don't have to. Yeah. So I don't normally buy things off of the PlayStation Network or uh, download them unless it's something Only, I can't get a yeah. physical release for. But one last thing on Hollow Knight is the challenge is worth it and it doesn't feel cheap ever. Yeah. Every time I make a mistake or die, I know it's my fault. And they optimize that very well. So you can get it on literally everything. Um, Check it out. Yeah, as far as I know, all of the bugs that were with it two years ago are now completely fixed, as far as I know. I haven't ran into any. Uh, go buy it and listen to Dissecting Table while you play. Don't do that. Enjoy the game free from blemish. It'll drive you insane. I think <laughs> if you combine those two, you'd literally blow your brains out. So Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes or follow us on Instagram. Don't feel free. Feel obligated. Yeah. Check out our Facebook. Send us nudes. We'll send you nudes. And we'll be back soon. Later, nerds. Later. <laughs>